0: You've tuned in to Modern Signed Books, your source for author interviews and writing conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by vjbooks.com, selling the new special edition of Red Death by Alan Jacobson. Visit vjbooks.com to buy signed books by Alan Jacobson, as well as hundreds of other authors. Without further ado, please enjoy this very special interview with Alan, hosted by our
1: very own Roger Nichols.
0: Well, welcome, and thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is a personal favorite. Alan Jacobson is an award-winning, best-selling author of mystery suspense thriller novels, including the FBI profiler Karen Vale series and the Opsig Team Black Covert Ops novels, as well as standalone books. And in the words of the Grateful Dead song, it's been a long, strange trip here. He graduated from uh, Queens College in New York with a degree in English and then headed west to Palmer College of Chiropractic, became a highly respected chiropractor. Uh, Additional honors included uh, being an agreed medical examiner and qualified medical evaluator by the state of California. And as I understand, you got a chance to uh, get expensive experience testifying as an expert witness, which gives you insight into the legal system, the justice system, and your medical background gives you uh, a back insight into the medical system. So you have a couple of advantages starting out on this.
1: <laughs> I did, yes.
0: One of the reasons I'm feeling so smug today is I had a chance to read an advanced copy of Red Death, your latest, and I'm bowled over yet again. So let's talk about that a little bit. Um it's a Karen Vale story, and unlike the, the previous novel, which had kind of a crossover between the opposite and the, and the Karen Vale, uh, this is a standalone sort of, but um, she goes to Hawaii in this one, and I know that you have said in the past that background is a character as much as anything else, and you do very extensive research on this, so... I have to ask, are you a frequent visitor to Hawaii, or did you make a special
1: trip? Made a special trip. And, you know, it was one of those things where I wasn't specifically looking to write this story or even set it there. The Mm -hmm. story behind Red Death was something that I came up with several years ago, and I didn't have a place to put it, to set it. It just, it was an idea based upon something that I had seen in my own town, and you know the the best thing a thriller author can do is start going down the path of what if you know what if this happens what if that mm-hmm. happens and these scenarios just start bouncing around in your mind and sometimes they turn take on a life of their own and turn into something really exceptional where i need to start writing it down or recording it because I, you know i do both sometimes i'll dictate an email to myself and then send it off so i always know where it is and I uh-huh. I'll sometimes reply to that email with new ideas. And so I have a string of, of, of concepts and ideas as I brainstorm that story. So this one, as I said, you know, came to me years ago and I filed it away, but it was never far from my thoughts. It was always something I wanted to write, but I didn't, it didn't come alive to me in a way because I couldn't place it somewhere. I knew it would be something relative to Karen Vale. But beyond that, I, it, it didn't go any further than that. And we were in Hawaii, and I said, this is the place that I want to set this story. And we actually had a different title, or I actually had a different title for it in the beginning. And as I was working with one of the FBI profilers that I work with, in this case, it was Mark saffrick uh, mm-hmm we were talking about the title and he goes, what about, and he suggested something it was red death, something. And I liked it. I liked it better than what I had. And mm-hmm. as I started to go down the path and and start getting, uh, you know, finalizing the, the storyline, we dropped that last word in the title that he suggested and ended up with red death. And so, you know, everything started to come together, as it often does, as you start going through the process, uh, looking at the places in Hawaii, where in Honolulu, uh, and the greater Oahu Island, where these, um, these scenes could be set. And sometimes it's a challenge, because it just comes to me, I don't have to think about it. And I go, it'll pop into my head, and I've got a scene, and I know this is where I want to set it. And other times... I know what I want to accomplish in the scene, and then I I think about, okay, where would be a good place to set that where the setting enhances what's happening in the scene, or enhances what the characters are doing or who the characters are. And there were a number of uh, occasions where it definitely played off the character, and the characters were were able to play off of the setting. And that's what made it a perfect setting for this story, I couldn't have really set it in another place. And that, to me, is the test for me, if if I've done mm-hmm. my job well. If the setting is so generic that you could just lift up the characters and story and put it somewhere else, uh, I, I really haven't utilized the setting. I haven't made the, uh, the setting a character in the novel, and that's what I always try to mm-hmm.
0: do. Okay. The, the reason I ask that question is that, Years ago, I had a chance to interview Steve Perry, not the lead singer of Journey, or, or the lead singer with the same name of the Cherry Pop and Daddies, <laughs> but the science fiction author. And he had said a story in Hawaii, and I asked him why, and he said, "Because I could write off the whole trip." So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: true, but I don't know.
0: That was secondary in your yeah. case. You were already there
1: when you got the right, idea. Right. So, I, I, whenever I travel, I've always got my eyes and ears open for potential Mm -hmm. settings for books. And sometimes I'll I'll tell you one story of uh, a setting that came to me from uh, about a year ago. We were in Peru and we had just been to uh, Machu Picchu and that we had a guide that had taken us and and, uh, several of our, our friends and family and it was nighttime. It was so we had spent the whole day, and we were in this van uh, on the way back to a larger city where our hotel was. And um, you know, it's it was not a very developed area, so there's no street lights. Can't see anything. So we started talking with a guide who turns out was a uni- university professor, and he just did That's this on the cool. weekends. So we had a fascinating discussion regarding Peruvian politics, and I told him I had a story that I wanted to write. And when I laid out the story, he laughed and he said, well, there's something that actually happened that we think is similar to what you are telling me. Let me tell you what actually happened. So he he laid out what happened uh, only about two weeks, if I recall, prior to our visit. Wow. So a whole story started to uh, emerge for me from this this trip. And uh, and then obviously the discussion we had with the guide and or professor and um, and I dictated it all, you know, the rest of the way uh, into an email. So that is a story that came from uh, a travel you know, destination that I was not planning to write something about. But every place I go. Is um, my mind is just working? How can I, uh, even if not consciously, sometimes it is consciously, sometimes not. Uh, how can I work this into uh, a novel and what story exists that's interesting from the local uh, fair and history? And certainly that that's one uh, you know, I hope to be able to write it in the future. We'll see. Um, that would be an mm-hmm. OPSIC team black novel. All right. It's fa- fascinating to, to hear the inside stuff
0: there. I know that, that dialogue is important to you. Do you ever get snatches of dialogue? You hear over here something, oh gosh, got to put that down.
1: No, and I'll tell you why the reason is no. Because dialogue that people actually speak is poor dialogue. And let me give you an example. Yeah. So you and I uh, meet and I say, hey, Roger, how you doing? Good, good, Alan, how are you? i uh, you know, doing okay. Uh, you know, so if you look at that dialogue, that is just about the worst dialogue you could possibly write. And if I wrote that in a novel, um, you know, I'd have to, you know, <laughs> have my head examined. But it would, it would all be edited out. I mean, I would never write in the first place. Mm-hmm. But let's say I did, it, you, you scrap all that and you get to the meat of the conversation, which begins after all the niceties and you know stuff that we that we just as a social construct say to each other to welcome one another, but that's bad dialogue for a book. What I do uh, do is I, I listen to people speaking and I get a flavor for how they clip their words, how they clip their sentences, how they sometimes speak, but don't really speak in complete thoughts, but the other person knows what they're talking about because it's a topic that they're familiar with. So you, Take that, you boil it down, and when you have your characters speaking, you always have to take all of that into account. Sometimes dialogue can be oblique. Two people talking about something that they're really not talking about the topic that they're talking about. It has undertones of of something else that that is happening in that relationship. So dialogue is very complex. And uh, I I remember having a discussion with Elmore Leonard, who was – perhaps the best writer uh, of dialogue. And I said to him, you know, how do you do it? How do you capture the essence of the dialects and the, you know, the uh, socioeconomic status of a person? I mean, you know who this person is within the first paragraph of of what they state." And he looks at me and he goes, I just hear it. Don't you? I just hear it in my head. (laughs) You know, um, I laughed. And, you know, of course, when you're talking to a master, of course, it's not that easy because he is the master. There's a reason why he's, uh, you know, head and shoulders above just about every other writer. But I thought about it in the subsequent few weeks. And he's right. You, You do hear it in your head. And that is where it comes from. But it also comes from what you hear and absorb in your experiences. And I had a similar discussion with James Patterson many years ago because uh, early in his career, um, he had just this incredible dialogue for his uh, main character who was black and, you know, Jim's not black. Um, but so, when I asked them about it, because I said, "How do you write? Uh, how do you capture the essence of black people so well?" Because I grew up in New York, and um, you mm-hmm. know, the, out in California, there there are, are fewer black people than there are back in New York and in Queens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And he said, "Well, I grew up playing basketball in Philadelphia, uh, you know, and and all my friends were black and." You know, so it, I developed my ear that way. So that's um, that is a big part of the equation as well. I learned dialogue in college because uh, I was an English uh, major, and one of the courses I took was playwriting workshop. And uh, a playwright was the professor, and he was teaching it, and uh, I learned a lot about dialogue. What is good dialogue, was bad dialogue. And then also I took another course, experimental theater workshop, which, you know, you would think, well, that's kind of an odd thing for an English major to take, but not really, because uh, what it did was we had to, as a group, so we were split into, you know, multiple groups and we had to write a play and then perform it. What that did was you realized that the dialogue you were writing has to Come out sounding genuine when you speak it, and you know it, it develops that ear so that when you speak the dialogue that you're writing, if it's not right, you got to fix it, and when it's yeah. right, you got to know that it's right. So those two experiences taught me very early on that dialogue is an art um, and not something to just be thrown onto a page because it creates a scene. It's it's much much more than that, and. Yeah, I mean, anybody who wants to learn dialogue, I would say read Elmore Leonard. And, and that, that's a course in its own.
0: It is, in, it is indeed. So what you're listening, you're actually picking up the, the rhythms of speech. Exactly. And just putting your, the words yep. in. Yeah.
1: And, you know, rhythm is so important. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it goes beyond just dialogue. Rhythm, mm-hmm. there's a rhythm to a sentence. There's a rhythm to a paragraph. There's a rhythm to a word. And, you know, sometimes when I'm working with um, my copy editor, she will make an edit and I'll accept the edit. But then I'll look at the sentence and I'll go, but it's lost its rhythm. This is not this is not good because now we've got two sentences that are consecutive that have the same number of of syllables or the rhythm is is the same. That's not good. You want to vary the rhythm within a sentence and within a paragraph. So. You know that's all part of the the editorial process, and it's all part of taking the time to go back and pay attention to your writing and uh, as it goes through all the phases of production. Yeah, so much fun to talk
0: with you because it's it's like i I'm getting a course here myself as as well from a, from a professional. Um, one of the things I noticed about Red Death when I went back to read it again, there are whole chapters that are nothing but dialogue with tiny little bits of exposition. And I didn't even notice the first time. That's how good it was. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I've had other authors, usually, you know, aspiring authors or beginning authors, and they'll say, okay, this, this scene was all dialogue or there was no dialogue in this scene. So that's the way I should do it. And I go, no, you know, you you don't want to copy. You want to absorb and understand why it was that way i don't think about it anymore because i've been doing this Mm -hmm. for 26 years um so you know it's to the point where it becomes second nature it's it's like a professional baseball player he's 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 a 300 hitter or a 320 hitter he gets beyond the mechanics of what he's doing of you know, a leg kick as the pitcher begins his motion. He's keeping his hips in, his shoulders tucked. You know, all these things, he's not thinking about them. He just does it. And it's only when he has a problem that he starts to think, okay, what am I not doing? Am I opening my hips too soon? So it's the same with a writer. Um, when, when you're having a problem, when something is not quite right, then you start to think, okay, what's wrong with this scene? Is it the character? Is it the setting? Is it you know, whatever it may be? But when you're writing, you just you know your craft so well that you don't even you're not concerned about the uh, mechanics uh, in the editorial process. Um, and I sometimes won't make any changes because it just it works. It's the several years ago I like, learned that I had <laughs> a voice in my head that was talking to me as I was writing. And I had ignored it just because it was almost like getting in the way of me getting through the, the scene that I was writing until I realized, hang on a second, you know, you're, you're telling yourself that something's wrong here and I'm telling myself why. And if I stop and listen, I can fix that right now and I don't have to worry about fixing it on a second draft. In fact, I didn't even need to do a second draft because it, the first draft comes out so much cleaner that you're polishing and you're, you're editing instead of rewriting. I hardly rewrite at all anymore and, and haven't for many wow. years. Once I started doing this, you know, it's, it's easy to get away from it, start to ignore it again. But I'm so attuned to it now that I say, hey, wait a minute, don't, don't do that. <laughs> Listen uh, to what you're telling yourself. Let's go back. Let's fix this. I know some authors have that uh, and, and others don't, but, you know, like every, we're, all, we're all different. Our brains work differently. Mm-hmm. You know, that goes to the whole question of do you outline, do you not outline? And, uh, you know, every, yeah, it's, it's, there is no right answer to that. I outline. That's the way I create. That's the way my brain works. Lee Child tells, tells me he, he doesn't outline. That works for him. So we're all yeah. different.
0: We should talk a little bit about plot here, give them a little tease, but I want you to do it because I don't want to give away any spoilers, and I have a tendency to do that if I'm not checked. So,
1: so you know, we think about Hawaii, and we think about pristine beaches and beautiful scenery and, the, uh, you know, clear, crystal clear ocean and incredible weather. Uh, now, what if there's a serial killer there? Suddenly, that disrupts the normal... Uh, state of affairs in in a, an island paradise. And that's what's happened in Red Death. Uh, but it's insidious because the deaths initially appear to be of natural causes of women in their 60s, uh, heart attacks, no reason to question it. But one detective does question it because something doesn't seem right to him. He's a new detective. Uh, he came from uh, San Francisco. And he calls his buddy in San Francisco, who we incidentally uh, met in in inmate 1577, which was set in San Francisco, the Bay Area. And uh, he goes, you know, I've got this really strange case. And uh, the detective in San Francisco or inspector in San Francisco says you should call Karen Vale, FBI profile. He never met her, but he was in the room during the case that, uh, involved the the story behind in May 1577. So he knew of her. He remembered what she looked like, a little bit of her personality, and he calls her. And that's really where the story begins. Vale is in Las Vegas handling another case, and she's headed home. She's at the airport, and she's about to to board, and she gets this call and. And, uh, yeah, it's not really the way it's handled. It goes through the unit. The unit chief has to approve it, so on and so forth. It's got to be requested. One thing leads to another, and she, instead of heading to Virginia, is heading to uh, Oahu. Well
0: done. Well done. You remembered everything. (laughs) (laughs) Because knowing you, you're probably three books ahead right now writing that. You know,
1: Roger, I'll tell you a very quick story about that. Uh, When The Hunted came out, it had been... Two years between my first two books, False Accusations and The Hunted, and that was because of a power struggle at Simon & Schuster. And my editor was involved, and as a result, uh, it took her seven months to get her edits to me after I had given her the manuscript. So there was a better chunk of a year that we Mm -hmm. lost, and so it was an extended time. But as you just said, you know, I didn't sit around twiddling my thumbs. I was working on new novels beyond that. So when I flew down to Los Angeles to start my book tour, uh, I, st- I literally started it off with a TV interview. And like you, the interviewer reads the books of the authors that she's interviewing, mm-hmm. which is very unusual and almost never was done. And when I would do TV interviews, even radio interviews, uh, it was pretty much, you know, you'd, you'd get Questions that were that came from the press release, and you know, maybe the back of the book, or maybe they read a few pages. But this interviewer, uh, Connie Martinson, uh, she she had interviewed at that point eight thousand authors, and her uh, show was syndicated uh, all over. And so I sit down, and she has an unusual interview style. She doesn't really ask questions; it's it's a, it's a discussion. And my uh, media escort warned me. she said, "You know, just to let you know, Connie doesn't ask a question, she's just talking with you, so you have to kind of jump in and and participate. So she starts asking, well, she starts talking about the the main character in the hunted, and first, I'm like realizing, holy cow, I gotta I gotta jump in here. I forgot you know yeah. um, <laughs> and so I start. I joined the conversation, and I'm realizing that I had forgotten the plot of my own novel. And she's talking about things, and I'm going, oh, my God, I don't even remember that. And um, I learned at that point, when right before you go on a book tour, you need to review your manuscript just for the high points to make sure that you remember. Yeah. Because like you said, your, your focus, your mind is on the next project and the next novel that you're working on. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I learned my lesson yeah. on that one. He just reminded me, I, I boldly interviewed 800, so I'm in wow. absolute awe of her. Uh, and uh, Orson Scott Card one time, and this is my favorite uh, probably clip from him, was was I asked him this detailed question. And he says, My God, you're going to expose me. I wrote that a year and a half ago. I don't remember. <laughs> so it does,
1: does, does happen. And I'm glad um, that he had an honest answer. That's nice.
0: Oh, yeah. He was was great. Somebody told me he was difficult. He turned out to be just a pussycat. I really enjoyed him. Maybe he just didn't have people that read his books, which I've been reading for years. Um, I want to talk a little bit about about Karen's character development because over the years, she's kind of softened a little bit. She's not quite as abrasive as she was, and in this one, it kind of felt like she was a little off her game in the first part of the book.
1: Yeah, Uh, that's that's, uh, a very good observation. So, all the way, all those observations, spot on. Um, so in The Seventh Victim, I wrote that not intending for Karen Vale to be a series. I had done seven years at that point of research, actually while I was writing the novel and by the time I finished it, uh, with the behavioral analysis unit, the profiling unit. And I had all this knowledge, and I was I was writing the seventh victim, and you know those people who've read it know that a lot happens in that novel. I mean, it's it's chock full of uh, intrigue and suspense and action and
0: and a big twist and, and
1: twists, yes, especially uh, at the end, yes, but twists throughout. Um, It was my silence of the lambs, you know, and that's kind of what I wanted it to be. And Robert Ressler, who was one of the founding fathers of uh, behavioral analysis, the the profiling unit, he remarked that it was, uh, you know, going to be a classic along the lines of silence of the lambs. And I mean, that meant a lot to me because this is, you know, the the guy who started this thing, this, this whole concept of. Uh, of the FBI's um, analysis based upon criminal investigative behaviors of, of the offender. The the only thing, you know, if I look back at the seventh victim, and, you know, there's a whole story as to how Vail's demeanor came about, but suffice it to say that it was not planned. Uh, I needed an FBI agent for another story that I was working on, which to this day is not published. And I ended up backing her out of that story. But, you know, I needed an FBI agent. I had all this information, you know, swimming in my head from uh, my work with the the, uh, profiling unit and out popped Karen Vale on my fingers uh, and the keyboard. And I just was taken with her immediately. I couldn't write her lines fast enough. And it took me a number of years to realize why that was. And I think, I think some of it, I, some of me comes uh, into Karen Vale in terms of her New York upbringing, mm-hmm. sarcastic remarks. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, New York is New Yorkers are known for their sarcasm. It's mm-hmm. just the way they communicate. And what I learned in the response of some people to the seventh victim was that the sarcasm was a little much for them if they weren't accustomed to mm-hmm. it. They're, they What I learned when I moved to California was that um, sarcasm was viewed by Californians who didn't understand sarcasm, didn't know what it was as, um, you know, being mean, And that wasn't what I was trying to intend. Um, So as a person, Mm -hmm. as an individual, I lost the sarcasm and I just wrote it out of my my being. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I started writing Karen Vale, it just started to come out and... um, what I think I decided along the way was to soften her a little bit because I didn't, as strong a reaction as people had to The Seventh Victim in terms of loving the novel, you know, it was a bestseller. It was, people were like, I, you know, when is the next Karen Vale coming out? But I decided to start softening her a little bit. and. The way I did that was basically instead of her blurting out the sarcastic remark, she now has it internally. Right. So it's an internal yeah. monologue and people love it because it's funny <laughs> It's and it doesn't come off as being mean because she's not saying it to anybody, although sometimes, yeah. you know, she'll she'll say it. And not realize she said it or think it and go, wait, did I just say that out loud? And, you know, so it's it's it makes for terrific humor. Sometimes it's the same thing that we're thinking, but would never say. Mm -hmm. So instead of having her say it, she's learning or has learned to play nicer with people and keep it to herself. And, you know, she's a work in progress and she acknowledges that. Her fiance works with her on it and, you know, (laughs) because he has to deal with it when he's out with people. And, you know, it's like, don't say it. you know, Keep keep that to yourself. He knows where she's going to go. So anyway, it's yes, this is all part of character development. You know, if you look at character development 101, this is really what it should be anyway. You don't want your character to be the same from book to book to book, year to year to year. There needs to right. be some growth in the character. There needs to be some evolution, some education. And this is part of what made Karen Vale's growth in education is realizing, you know, I'll probably get more with honey than with vinegar. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll keep the vinegar in my own thoughts. Uh, I'll only share it with the reader. Yeah. And, uh, you uh-huh. know, it, it makes for a very interesting perspective. It's it's third person but with a first person sensibility because you are seeing things through her eyes, you're in her head, you hear her thoughts and readers absolutely love it. As do I, that's what the italics are for. Yes. Right. Yes. And you know, so there was that in the seventh victim too. And that mm-hmm. came about because the very first draft of the seventh victim that I wrote was uh, first person. And I, I sent mm. the first 75 pages to my agent I thought it was the best thing I'd ever written. And I, you know, I had a conference call with her after and she goes, you can't use this. I was like, what are you talking about? She says, you know, it's this is first person. Your other two books are third person. You're going to confuse the audience and, you know, your readers know you have a certain style and now you're changing it completely. And yeah, no, start over. I was beside myself. Now, you know, she's the expert. I wasn't. And it's still... Debatable whether or not that was correct or not, but what it did make me do in my frustration was to take Microsoft's Word find and replace feature and take all the eyes,
0: right? Yeah. yeah,
1: and I changed them all to she, and so on and so forth, and and then I took all the uh, the thoughts and I put them into italics. So mm-hmm. what we ended up with at the end. When I did all these changes, was this third person uh, with a first person sensibility, and I loved it so much that I decided to keep it, and that became the Karen Vale style uh, for all the novels, and I wouldn't change wouldn't change a thing. It's it's perfect. See now, what you've
0: done is you made me rethink all of my favorite authors doing that, and I suspect a lot of them do that. So thank you for that <laughs> insight. I could use all of them I can get. I love the little tidbits that you do, that are character indicators, and I I take notes when I read. So, some of the things that Karen says: uh, uh, "Wasted time is the enemy," right? Uh, and she says, "I don't want to make the facts fit the model. I want to go with the facts and take and see where they take us." Right. That's that's the the good investigator. I'm wondering if you would be comfortable in reading a little section. Sure. Which section? Well, I just happen to have my book here. Uh, chapter three.
1: Okay. Let me let me pull it up while we're talking. Okay.
0: Okay. What I'm looking at is about the fourth paragraph down where it starts, Veil glanced back over to the first paragraph on the next page, which might not be paginated the same way. Yeah. Maybe,
1: maybe not uh, Tell you what, okay. give me a sentence.
0: Okay. Uh, the first sentence is Veil glanced back for one final look at the casinos. Okay, I got it. Okay, and there's kind of a punchline. Uh, the last word is friends, about four or five paragraphs down, if you could read that, that section. Because I think it's one of those little insights.
1: Oh. <laughs> yeah, 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 that definitely uh, captures Karen Vale for sure. Um, so you want me to start with uh, as she examined her calendar?
0: That works fine. Just that section is fine. Okay,
1: let's see. So she's looking for a date for them to get married. And so it starts off. As she examined her calendar and pondered potential dates, her phone rang. It was a number she did not recognize. She had been getting spammed by stupid robocalls, so she recorded a new outgoing voicemail message. I'm screening my calls, so leave a message and I'll call you back. If you're a robocaller, may whoever programmed you be stuck with pestilence and cyber plague. Okay, so the announcement was not quite that harsh, but it was close. Robbie suggested she make the outgoing message more, well, outgoing, more friendly, less angry. She countered that suggestion by pointing out that her tactic had worked. People stopped phoning her, even her friends.
0: Well done. I don't know. I uh, went across that and I said, that is a little tiny profile right there. It's magic, really, <laughs> in, in just a few words. Thank you. <laughs> so so I, thank you for doing that. And by the way, you have a very nice voice. You. you could make a career on radio. You could do radio easily.
1: I, I've never thought about it, but that would be fun.
0: Well, if you ever, ever buy the dolls in Oregon, stop by. We'll give you a couple of ads to read and see how it works out. Maybe there would be something. You
1: funny. know, I was given the opportunity to read an essay that I wrote for a book called Hollywood Versus the Author. And it was, I can't remember, 15 of us telling stories about our experience with Hollywood. And the publisher sent out uh, an email and said to all the authors, the contributing authors, hey, who wants to read their essay for the audiobook? If you don't, that's fine. You know, we'll hire a narrator. But I just thought these are really interesting essays, and it could be great to have you read it because you would— you know instill life into yeah. the stories, the experiences that you had. And I thought about it, and I said, oh, I'll give it a shot. you know, So they sent me to a, uh, a recording studio, and I did it, and it was great fun working with the engineer. We got into this great rhythm of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, if I had to redo something, you know, just pick it up and start from the previous sentence. and it was it was a mm-hmm. fun experience. I enjoyed it a lot. I also did good. a voiceover for a movie trailer which <laughs> no in a world where, no, no, well, maybe not that dramatic, but um, it, it's kind of odd the way it came about, but a uh, Peruvian gentleman who worked at the Peruvian embassy uh, is working on a uh, film. He, he uh, wrote it. He's directing it. Uh, and he, produced a trailer and he needed one in English. He had one in Spanish. And after talking with him, he said, I think, I think you would do a great job. Would you give it a shot? If it doesn't work, that's fine. But if it does, you know, that would be awesome. So, so we did it. I didn't know what he was going to think, but he said it was exactly the way he wanted it. He gave me very little direction. It was just more the images and the script. So because I had the trailer, the images, I was able to, Watch it and understand the tone uh, of what the narration was supposed to be. So, anyway, that the book movie hasn't come out yet, but I completely forgot about that. And so you just said that.
0: Wow. Now, in some cases, I don't know if this will qualify because it's not an American movie. Usually, you can get your Screen Actors Guild card if you or take part mm-hmm. in that. So, you have to look on, into that. Yeah. I mean, additional something to work on. I mean, you know, fall back if this thing doesn't work out in another 20, 30 no. years. Yeah, right. <laughs> Oh, my. By the way, humor and I, all your laughter. You have a sneaky sense of humor. <laughs> and the reason I, I say that here's here it is in five words without thinking her special talent. <laughs> you know, I blew by that the first time and the second time said, wait a minute there. That's a burn. That is-
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you know, this is not something that's planned. And mm-hmm. it just it just comes I, I I feel like you know Elmore Leonard saying, well, I just hear it in my head you know it's a very simple yeah, explanation, yeah. but it it just comes to me I the the lines and and this has been happening me to me since you know 20 25 years um, So I, I t- to this day I still can't explain it any more than I could back then but it just it's just the way it comes off my fingertips i don 't think, oh, I want something funny here. let me think of something funny. no it's not that at all it's just, and I'll tell you something else, Roger. I don't realize how funny these books are until I go back to reread it when I finish the draft. It's hard to tell people well it the novel involves serial killer who does you know heinous things to the victims and but it's really funny it's like it, it doesn't go together. But, but it just does it it works, and
0: what it does it's a little mustard in the hot dog yeah. there a little little different flavor right. yeah, fast, fascinating stuff i've so i can i hope I really understand uh, that you've got lots of time for this, so we'll be four or five hours getting through <laughs> all my questions but i this is the first book I've read that mentions COVID yes. at all it's just just a passing it doesn't fits fit into the plot at all, but I think man. Times have changed and we are floating with that. How does it affect you as an author? Well,
1: it's something that I've been thinking about because as I work on, you know, the next book, you start wondering, you know, this is not just something that is happening in society. This is a major thing. It affects every aspect of who we are as a society. We don't socialize much anymore. We don't go to restaurants much unless it's outside Uh, forget about bars. And, you know, I mean, people are not getting, you know, haircuts and (laughs) it is, it permeated every aspect of everyday life worldwide. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm struggling with that a little bit, you know, do you acknowledge it? Do you not? Do you, um, I, I, so what I have thought to myself is that I wouldn't incorporate it into the story where people are wearing masks and the because that's going to pass. Um, yeah. Now, there may be another pandemic, you know, two years from now. We don't know. But I think, you know, we have to go back to a normal state of affairs. Whatever that new normal is, it's going to be normal. You know, where people are going to be able to socialize again in whatever way that happens. So I don't want to date it by by writing about mm-hmm. that. But I thought it deserved a mention. And it wasn't an out of the blue mention. It was talking about people oh. working remotely, um, and that actually came into play during the the proofreading process. It wasn't even the editorial or copy editing process. It was very very late in the game. But as I was looking through it, I went, "This is a perfect place to mention it." And Drop like you said, in. I mean, it was just a mention, but it mm-hmm. does place uh, does place it in time.
0: I also like your cultural references. I mean, on page five, for gosh sakes, you get the obligatory Hawaii Five O reference out of the way right away. I mean, you have to You're Hawaii. That's what you. That's what you saw yeah, if you were. Absolutely,
1: there. and yeah. uh, you know, we went there to to the. I can't even pronounce it, but it's the big statue in front of the uh, you know fictional Hawaii Five O headquarters, which my understanding mm-hmm. is they actually filmed in that building. That's that's where they you know. That was their headquarters there, Um, but it's not really police headquarters. And um, across from that is the Ioni Palace, and um, where you know a a big scene occurs in the beginning. So, and and there's a photo on the the Norwood Press hardcover collector's collector's edition of me with the banyan trees, which are just amazing. uh, Of nature, yeah,
0: upside down trees. Yeah,
1: Yeah. (laughs) yes. Sort of.
0: Wow. And also, I, I have to mention, this one, This one, I think, is a little salute that you did, that I caught this. Page 274 in my manuscript, you quote Hill Street Blues and the beloved sergeant, let's all be careful out there. Yeah. Thank you for that. Everybody loves that yeah. guy. It's so sad when he yes. passed away. Yeah.
1: Yes, I remember. Right? Yeah. That was a long time ago, but I remember when he uh, passed away. It was cancer, I believe, throat cancer, if, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. But yeah, that was um just again seem to just be the right thing at that point it's
0: about it's, well, i don't know where the golden touch comes from i suspect it's a collaboration of all your background and influences but every now and then just one little it's like it's a pointillist bit you know the little dots that form a bigger yes. picture that's what you were doing all through that i haven't thought about that before but so you've got another title
1: that's dot. actually uh uh in in the seventh victim I won't, I won't go through the, the plot, but there's there's a reference to the Impressionists and pointillism in uh, Karen Vale's background yeah. as an art history major. <laughs> ah, well, I'm, I'm,
0: it's been a long time. I haven't read that for a long time, so I'll have to get back to that. Um, I also I learned stuff from your books, too. I mean, you're the first guy that taught me what unsub was, <laughs> uh, for instance. Um, and things like in this one, um, you talk about geographic profiling and dna phenotyping which is newish yep. to me yep. so and also it takes a month for soap to be ready i didn't know that
1: <laughs> you know when you're researching things you come across a, a, you know a lot of information some of it's very interesting some of it's not some of it's important but doesn't have any place in the story but every once in a while, you know, something has meaning to the plot. And that one was very important to the plot. Uh, so why not put it in there? I mean, it just I mm-hmm. i like uh, when my readers learn something, I take them behind the scenes of places most people don't get to go. And um, yeah. if I can show them something and teach them something that I learned along the way as well, I think it's it's More than just an airplane novel, which I hate to, you know, call it that, but, you know, uh, I I have heard people, you know, refrain, you know, you go through the airports and these kind of novels. uh,
0: Five hour flight. Give me the thick one. Yeah. Yeah. Not only do we learn stuff from you, we learn good stuff from you, which is what I really appreciate. Oh, there's one other quote from Karen. I have a friend who used to work at Intel, so I've learned a thing or two about over the years enough to make me dangerous, not enough to make me smart this from a guy who's really smart so i appreciate
1: that 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 was a good and, one. and read the next line or two lines after that i forgot i didn't take that one oh, down oh, so what I, was that? I, okay that i have to pull up here because uh, okay let's, so Vale says enough to make me dangerous but not enough to make me smart and russell says "Hmm, dangerous but not smart that's how lance burden describe you <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten it.
0: I missed that. I should have picked that one up. Um, all right, let's. Th- I'm going to throw another angle at you because we're getting pretty close to the end here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I've been very generous with me here today, um, and that is, since you're a male author writing a female character, do you ever get feedback on that? And has that changed over time?
1: So, um, my my mother was a very strong woman, uh, and my wife is as well. Probably not a coincidence there. Um, <laughs> and, you know, between those two, I've learned uh, how how women think. And I remember early, early, early in my marriage, so before I was even writing, uh, so this was 30-something years ago, I got the book uh, Men Are From Mars, Women Are, uh, Men Are From...
0: Women are from Venus. And men are
1: from Mars, right. Mars. And right. it was an eye-opener for me because it really helped me understand how differently women and men think and how they mm-hmm. process things and how they perceive things. And uh, I think that all that experience helped me form the understanding of how Karen Vale thinks, how she reacts um, and then another important influence was uh, the other uh, FBI profiler who I've worked with for you know 25 years, uh, Mary Ellen O'Toole. And Mary Ellen was the second female FBI profiler. The first one didn't last very long, uh, so you know you could you could almost make the case that for all intents and purposes, Mary Ellen was the first. She had to deal with being in an all male unit, and back then you know, the FBI was much more predominantly male. Uh, now it's, it's much better uh, in terms of gender balance, but back then it was not. And, you know, you were dealing with a unit that dealt with very violent crime and probably the worst things that one human being could do to another in terms of violence, physical violence. And she had a lot of stories to tell me relative to how the males saw her and how she interacted with them and how they interacted with her. And those stories helped me form the, the Karen Vale character and, and inform the Karen Vale character. So all those things, you know, when you wrap them up into a, um, uh, you know, a ball, that is what uh, forms Vale as I go about writing her. Then, you know, once uh, I'm done, my wife goes through it, and she'll let me know if there's something that doesn't ring true. And, Good. you know, by and large, I mean, every few books, she'll point something out, and she'll go, no, this isn't right. She wouldn't. But by and large, you know, there there aren't too many points where, um, you know, I hit those. Okay. You, know, you didn't quite get that right.
0: Well, you, it's it's an iterative process. The more you do it, the better no, you get at it. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And my copy editor is female, too. So, you know, she'll Mm -hmm. she'll give me a a point or two and say, hey, you know, look at this more closely. How
0: how, how about that? How about this? How about that? Yes. Um, He's checking through his notes again for what he's left. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you wished I had? Oh, that's my trick question. It's the collect all in case uh, I missed something totally obvious. I want to make sure not to leave it on the table.
1: Relative to Red Death, I think, you know, it's it's so often difficult to discuss my novels because I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to give anything away. Right, so right. So much happens along the way, and it's, you know, twisty, turny. So some of the interesting things that I want to discuss, I can't. Um, you know, I do go back. This follows a format that I've used in the past, which I really like, and it's the different time periods, two different storylines that come together, and it allows me to do a couple things. Uh, it allows me to explore the killer in a way that we see the killer growing up and and how he was molded into who he becomes. And it also allows me to do a little historical fiction. And take somebody back mm-hmm. in, in time uh, and place. Because, you know, the, the world back in the 70s or 80s or even 90s is very different from the way it is now. COVID yeah. aside. Um, so I think it's interesting for the reader to see the development of the killer. How did he come to be who he is now? Why? Uh, and instead of the reader being told... It allows me to show them, which is always, you know, you always want to show if you can rather than tell. It's something that I've, I've done and I'm thinking of doing again in the future, the story I want to tell that would demand that that, that be written, that story be written that way. And I do that in, in Red Death. And it allows me to tell the story of the killer in a way that is perhaps a bit surprising in some respects.
0: There is a certain amount of sympathy. Yes. Because of the things that the killer endured exactly.
1: as a child, exactly. And generally speaking, good writing is where the villain is not a pure villain. That you know, we we do have some understanding or sympathy or empathy uh, in some way, and that's hard to do. Um, but I was able to do it in Red Death, and I think it's a an integral part of the story. You know, you've got such a contrast from those chapters, which are. Of of a certain heaviness to the lightness of the humor in the Karen Vale chapters, and I think it makes for for a very nice uh, contrast and uh, doesn't allow one thing to to overpower the other. Yeah, Mm -hmm. culminates in a I think a a really nice ending that um, it's excellent.
0: I'll just (laughs) say that for you, it's excellent and a very dramatic. How shall I put it? Location as well so it fit it just fits all beautifully together in that <laughs> yeah, regard i think we should ask we should let people know where we are in the process now this the book has not come out right. yet as we record right. this and you, is there a publication date yet or are still working on? yeah that?
1: so the uh the ebook and trade paperback will be out september 15th um we're hoping mm-hmm. the hardcover will be out around that time it may hit that date mm-hmm. um i don't know it's it. it'll be close Uh, but you know, uh, Norwood press doesn't, uh, mass produce those books. They're just art and everything has to be right. Um, and they are making sure everything is right. So sometimes it it takes a little bit longer to, to get the, you know, my dad used to say measure twice, cut once. And and that's definitely what the process is with a handcrafted book like this. And, um, I, I think the, the product speaks for itself. It's just about the nicest hardcovers you'll ever find. And,
0: and the nicest people. I will give a big plug for VJ Books, where you can get autographed copies by this fine gentleman here and a whole bunch of other folks. Uh, and they're based in Oregon, which I have to say, as an Oregonian, I'm very plow- proud to know them and work with them. So cool on that. Let's mention some of the other things. Your website?
1: Yes. So surprisingly, um, it's alanjacobson.com. Um <laughs> I know, (laughs) I know. Um, But, you know, it's been around a long time, been around for 22 years, 23 years. Um, And we, you know, we've remade it multiple times over the years. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of material on there. Reading group guides, if you're in a reading group, uh, each book has a a guide that Mm -hmm. you can have to discuss with your, your group. Uh, Interviews with me, um, questions and answers, and uh, if you're an aspiring writer, there's a writer's toolkit with questions and answers that I've received over, you know, 20 plus years uh, relative to contracts and um, publicity, getting published, getting an agent, you know, all these things that that we have to navigate uh, in our career. A A lot of material up there.
0: And, and it's beautifully designed, by the way. I, I took another peek at it this morning. So, yeah, I think that's going to wrap us up, um, unless there's a final thought you might have.
1: Um, well, you know, one final thought. I, I co-authored a free personal safety booklet, yes. uh, and that is, we give it away free on my website. Uh, I co-authored it with uh, FBI profiler Mark Saffric And it is really uh, vital information because it we teach you how an offender thinks so that you can apply that to any situation you're you find yourself in. So we go through a number of scenarios. We give you checklists, explanations, and so that when you come out of it, when you finish that, you'll understand how these offenders think and what you need to do to protect yourself. So, you know, again, it's, you, uh, join my newsletter, which is, uh, when you get the, the free book, but I, hardly send my newsletter out twice a year maybe uh some years uh so it, yeah we won't be stuffing your inbox it's worth
0: it yes and by the way the, i've sent uh copies of that to all my relatives because it's the best advice i've seen in a long time so
1: thank <laughs> you pleasure thank you roger thanks for listening to modern signed books if you like what you heard
0: please make sure to check out our social media in the description below we will see you next time